Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Join me in your Bible this morning in the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, and beginning with verse 13. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. The passion of the Christ, the suffering servant of the Lord. Hear God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle or startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. But he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will provide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53 has captivated the hearts and imaginations of those who study the Bible like few texts in the rest of Scripture. Kyle Yates, Old Testament professor at Southern Seminary, said it was the Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. Polycarp, the church father, called it the golden passional of the Old Testament evangelist. Spurgeon said, it is the Bible in miniature, the gospel in its essence. The Old Testament scholar Franz Delitz says, quote, it is the most central, the deepest and the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy outstripping itself has ever achieved. It looks as if it had been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha. Ivan Engel notes, without any exaggeration, it is the most important text of the Old Testament. And John Piper adds, nowhere in all of the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus Christ shine more clearly than in Isaiah chapter 53. As we just read, the song Acts begins at chapter 52 and verse 13. It is the fourth and the climactic of the servant songs in Isaiah, the three others being found in chapters 42, 49, and 50. This particular song easily divides into five stanzas of three verses each in our English translation. And interestingly, each stanza is longer than the previous one. The song is filled with creative contrast and, and regular repetition, and two themes in particular dominate these five stanzas. One is the theme of exaltation. The other is the theme of humiliation. In fact, exaltation both begins and ends the song in stanza one and stanza five, and the theme of suffering and humiliation is what we find in stanzas two, three, and four. It's also interesting to note that the first verse of each stanza captures quite well the theme of that particular stanza and summarizes quite nicely its content. But as we prepare to enter into what I love to call a holy of holies passage and bask in the glories of this incredible text, a very important question must be raised and answered. And that question is this, who is the suffering servant? Interestingly, many different ideas and many different opinions have been put forth, but when everything is analyzed and looked at carefully, you can, I think, summarize it in terms of three particular views. Number one, some people understand it corporately. In other words, this is national, remnant, or idea Israel. Uh, this particular view became popular during the medieval period among Jewish scholars uh, in opposition to a messianic understanding of Isaiah chapter 53. But it does fail, I believe, both on the history of interpretation as well as the work accomplished by the servant. The fact of the matter is Israel could not atone for her own sins, much less could Israel atone for the sins of the nation. In fact, verse eight, I think makes it very clear. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, which contextually would have to refer to the nation of Israel. A second uh, perspective is that the song should be understood individually. 
And different scholars have pro-offered different ideas, some saying that the individual of Isaiah 53 is Isaiah himself, some Hezekiah, others Jeremiah, some Zerubbabel, and some have said it is a reference to Moses. But again, what is said of this particular servant could scarcely be applied to any one of those individuals. Certainly, we could not say of any of them, as verse 9 says, he has done no violence, nor is there any deceit found in his mouth. The third view, of course, is the view of the Messiah. It is understood to be a reference to the coming Messiah, the royal Davidic king, the ideal Israelite who does perfectly both the will and the work of the Lord. In fact, the German scholar Gerhard von Rod, who taught at Heidelberg for many years, I think captures a glimpse of what the chapter is all about when he says, and I quote, we may rule out those interpretations, some of which are grossly fanciful that see in the servant a figure in the past. The servant embodies all that is good in Israel's existence before Yahweh. The expressions used of him go far beyond biography. Indeed, they go far beyond the present. Indeed, the picture of the servant of Yahweh, of his mission to Israel and to the world and of his expiatory suffering is prophecy of the future. It belongs to the realm of pure miracle, which Yahweh reserves for himself. However, we need to be honest this morning. The intertestamental period and even the early church did not understand Isaiah 53 uh, in terms of the Messiah. In fact, it was not understood at all to be the Messiah. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament very carefully, the idea of a suffering Messiah really doesn't find a lot of support other than in the book of Isaiah and also the book of Zechariah. Furthermore, it's very clear that the disciples certainly did not anticipate, did not look for a suffering servant Messiah as Mark chapter 8 verses 31 through 34 and the words of Peter to our Lord make very clear. And yet following the cross and the resurrection, a new interpretive key, a new hermeneutical principle was provided that opened the eyes of the early church and also opens our eyes to the true identity of the suffering servant. Jesus himself, as well as Paul and Peter, Matthew and Mark, Luke and John are all in agreement as to the, who the servant is. And Philip the evangelist likewise joins their course when in Acts chapter 8 and verse 35, he says to the man from Ethiopia that the suffering servant is Jesus. In fact, this text is cited no less than seven times directly in the New Testament, and there are more than 40 allusions to it as well. In fact, it is my strong conviction that Jesus in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 weds both Isaiah's suffering servant, Isaiah 53, and Daniel's son of man, Daniel 7, and thereby redefines for us exactly who the Messiah would be. 
There he says, for even the son of man, Daniel 7, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Isaiah chapter 53. And so when you walk through this particular passage, you discover that the Messiah is indeed the suffering servant of Isaiah who did what? He bore our griefs, verse 4. He carried our sorrows, verse 4. He was wounded for our transgressions, verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities, verse 5. He was chastened for our peace, verse 5. He heals us by his stripes, verse 5. He bore our iniquities, verse 6 and 11. He was oppressed and afflicted, verse 7. He was slaughtered, verse 7. He was cut off, verse 8. He was stricken for our transgressions, verse 9. He was crushed by the Lord, verse 10. He was put to grief, verse 10. His soul was made a sin offering, verse 10. He poured out his soul unto death, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors, verse 12. He bore the sins of many, verse 12. He makes intercession for sinners, verse 12. Here is no less than 18 glorious truths of the work accomplished by the man of Isaiah chapter 53, this is Isaiah's suffering servant. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we walk quickly through, and we will walk quickly through these verses, I want us to see five significant facets of the work of the servant from each particular stanza. The accuracy and the precision of the passage is a marvelous testimony to the inspiration of the scriptures when you remind yourself this particular text was written 700 years before the Lord Jesus would make his presence known on planet earth. So what do we see in these five stanzas? Number one, see the servants exaltation. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. In a real sense, this particular stanza is like the prologue of the song. In fact, it really serves quite well as a summation of the entire prophecy. In fact, the initial servant song of chapter 42 gave us the origin of the servant. And now this particular text provides for us his culmination and his exaltation. Now, why is he exalted? Well, three reasons are given in each of the three verses of stanza one. Number one, he is exalted because of his success. Behold, see, look, take notice, my servant. This is the Lord speaking about his servant. In fact, interestingly, the servant never speaks one time in this song. It is the Lord who dominates the entirety of the five stanzas. And so the Lord says, my servant, he shall act wisely. The idea is he shall prosper. He shall succeed in what he is doing. In fact, he will act so wisely. He will certainly succeed in the mission that God gives him. And as a result of that, number one, he shall be high. Number two, he shall be lifted up. And number three, he shall be exalted. Some Bible scholars have read that and have concluded that this actually speaks of Christ's resurrection. He shall be high, his ascension, he shall be lifted up, and his current intercessory work in heaven, he shall be high and exalted. He shall be greatly exalted. 
And I think there's little doubt that this particular verse was in the mind of the Apostle Paul when he penned that glorious hymn in Philippians chapter 2, in particular verses 9 through 11, where he says, wherefore he has been highly exalted. So God knows and the world should know that the servant will not fail. He will succeed. But That is not the way it began. Yes, he's exalted because of his success, but he is also exalted because of his suffering. Look at verse 14. Many were astonished at you. Why were they astonished? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Suddenly the song takes a different direction. People are astonished be translated, they are appalled, they, they are shocked. Why? Well, he's exalted in verse 13, but he is humiliated in verse 14. In fact, the word translated astonished or appalled is used in Ezekiel chapter 27 and verse 35 to describe men's reaction to the ruins of Tyre following its destruction. In other words, his appearance and his form, his outward features are marred. They they are disfigured. Uh, John Oswald, who taught for many years in Kentucky, uh, says such a disfigurement. His appearance is hardly human. The Christian Standard Bible captures it this way. The appearance was so disfigured, he did not even look like a man. So he is exalted because of his success, but he is also exalted because of his suffering. But then thirdly, he is exalted because of his service. Verse 15, so shall he, that is my servant, sprinkle many nations. In fact, kings shall shut their mouth because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Now, there's an interpretive issue here. Uh, The Hebrew word translated sprinkle in the ESV, even the ESV itself has a marginal reading, and that would be the word startle. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible follows in that same vein, translating the word marvel. Now, it could go either way. The fact of the matter is there is support for the translation sprinkle. After all, this particular song is filled with priestly uh, and sacrificial terminology. It runs throughout the song. And yet it may be that rhetorically there is something of a contrast or a comparison here with verse 14. In verse 14, they are shocked at the abuse of the servant. But in verse 15, they are shocked at the accomplishment of the servant. In fact, they are so shocked and so surprised an unimaginable thing happens. Kings, they shall shut their mouths because of him. And why is it that they will shut their mouth? Because that which was previously hidden has now been revealed to them. They now will hear and they now will understand. And interestingly, the apostle Paul, as he is taking the gospel to unreached people groups in Romans chapter 15, sees his ministry 
as a fulfillment and, a, and, and an extension, if you like, of the ministry and the work of the suffering servant of the Lord. Again, John Oswald says it so very well. Kings shut their mouths because it was through the loss of all things that the Savior will conquer all things. And who would have ever imagined that this is the way that God would accomplish his great work? So even in the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the Great Commission impulse is already present as the kings and the nations will hear and they will understand. See the servant's exaltation. Number two, see the servant's rejection, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. Isaiah 53, verse 1, naturally flows out of chapter 52 and verse 15. The speaker now shifts from being the Lord to, I think, the redeemed eschatological community, no doubt led by redeemed Israel through the voice of the prophet Isaiah. They look back. They lament. They, they mourn over the fact that they completely misjudged the Lord's servant and they did not believe the message about him. Don't miss the contrast. The nations did not believe because they didn't know. Israel knew, and yet she did not believe because she failed to recognize what the text calls the arm of the Lord. In fact, John in John chapter 12, verse 38, and Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 16, both see the unbelief of Israel as being a fulfillment of what we see here in verse 1. And don't miss this. Almost every English translation, I think rightly, puts the remaining verses in the past tense as if the actions of the servant have already occurred. And of course, what they are simply noting is, as far as God is concerned, the work of the servant was a sign, sealed, and settled reality in eternity past. And so to say the action is already done is simply God's way of saying it is certainly going to be accomplished. Now, in what way did they misunderstand and reject the servant of the Lord? Well, let me make three quick observations. Verse one, he appeared to be insignificant and not important. Two rhetorical questions are put forth. Number one, who has believed our report, our message? The answer, very few. The emphasis falling here on human responsibility. Secondly, to whom has the arm of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the power of the Lord been revealed? The answer is many, the nations. And here the emphasis falls upon divine sovereignty. And yet when he came, the message about the servant impressed few. The initial response of human persons was not impressive. Their evaluation of him was not stellar. It was not high, and it will spiral down even further. He appeared to be insignificant, not important. Secondly, he appeared to be a nobody, not a somebody. Verse 2, for he grew up before him. The phrase before him is clearly a reference to the Lord. He grew up before him. How? Well, like a young plant. He was like a root out of dry ground. Further, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. 
He grew up before God like a young plant, like a tender sprout or shoot. I do think uh, there is a connection here to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, which connects the servant to the coming servant of the Lord. Furthermore, the text is very clear that his growing up is before the Lord. The Lord is watching all that his servant is doing. The Lord is observing all that is taking place. The the world may think he's a nobody, but God has a, a completely different opinion and evaluation altogether. But look at the text. He's a root out of dry ground. That's unimpressive. Gives you the question, will he even make it? He has no form or beauty or majesty or splendor when we see him, nothing that would cause us to desire him. Now, don't misunderstand what the text is saying. I've had people say to me, well, the Bible teaches that Jesus was ugly. That's not what the text is saying at all. It's simply saying that he was unimpressive. The text is simply saying he appeared to be unimportant. The text is simply saying that his was the stuff of a nobody, not a somebody. I mean, look at it. Born into a poor nation, born to poor parents, born to people in slavery, a backwater town called Nazareth as his home. This is what the arm of the Lord looks like? No, he appears to be a nobody, not a somebody. But then thirdly, in verse 3, he appears to be a loser, not a winner. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice that the word despised is repeated for emphasis, carries the idea of being evaluated as worthless, as again of no importance. He's a loser. So why waste any time with him? After all, he's a man of sorrows, probably referring both to physical sorrows as well as mental sorrows or pains. He's acquainted with grief. It could be translated, he is familiar with sickness. He's a weakling. What can such a weakling do for us? Again, this is the arm of the Lord. We hid our faces from him. We would not even look at such a man. After all, he's despised. We do not esteem him. We loathe him. We pay him no attention. He's a loser, not a deliverer. This man has his own problems. What could he possibly do for us? The servant of the Lord, the world said, insignificant. The servant of the Lord, the world said, he's a nobody. The servant of the Lord said, the world, he is a loser. See the servant's rejection. Number three. See the servant's passion, verses 4 through 6. These verses involve a very dramatic turn revealing a completely new perspective. Now we really begin to zero in and understand why the servant had pain and sickness and sorrow and grief, and we discover it was all for us. At least 10 times in these three verses, you will see the personal pronouns, our, we, us. The suffering of the servant was not his fault. The suffering of the servant was ours. Three things are said about his passion. Number one, he bore our sorrows or our illnesses. Verse four, surely 
expresses an idea of certainty. You want to get an accurate perspective on what's going on? Here it is. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, uh, smitten by God, and afflicted. He bore or took up our griefs, our sicknesses. He carried our sorrows, our pains, looking back to the same terminology that we saw in verse 3. Yet we esteemed him, we reckoned him, we considered him stricken. Interestingly, that word stricken was sometimes associated with the uh, disease of leprosy. And there's actually a tradition uh, that the uh, Messiah uh, in the Babylonian Talmud would be a leper. He is smitten. The Christian Standard Bible says he was struck down. And notice who he was struck down by. Struck down by God and afflicted. Now, don't miss the irony here. This tells us they thought that his suffering and his pain and his strictness was the result of the Lord, and it was the Lord's doing. And they were right, but they were right, but for the wrong reason. You see, many in ancient Israel believed that suffering was the result of one's own sins, and therefore they assumed wrongly that the servant was getting what he deserved. The griefs and sorrows he carried were indeed deserved, but not by him, but by us. He bore our sorrows. Verse 5, he bore our sufferings. He was wounded, pierced through for our transgressions. Three times in the Bible, the death of the Messiah is described as a piercing. Psalm 22, verse 16 Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, when it says of Israel, they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will weep as for an only son. He was wounded for our transgressions, our rebellions. He was crushed. The word could be translated pulverized. He was broken to pieces, grounded into dust for our iniquities. Uh, The chastisement, the punishment for our peace, for our shalom was upon him. And it is by his strikes, his welts, his wounds, blows that cut that we are healed. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 is so clear. He takes our diseases, but he gives us health. He takes our punishment, but gives us peace. He takes our wounds and he gives us healing. He bore our sorrows. He bore our suffering. But verse 6, he bore our sins. Harry Ironside served as the pastor of the Moody Church from 1929 to 1948. Harry Ironside said that Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 is the most wonderful text in all of the Bible. We just walked through it very simply. All we like sheep have gone astray. It informs us that none, not one, is excluded. We've gone astray. We're like dumb sheep. We get lost. We're ever unaware of the dangers of sin that are about us, oblivious to the consequences of sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Each of us has chosen our way over God's way. And then here it comes. And the Lord has laid on him, caused to fall on him, the iniquity of us all. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that the good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. Could Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, provide at least in part the image to explain his ministry? We should recognize that since verse 4, we have been immersed in the language of sacrifice, the language of atonement, the language of substitution, the language of salvation. There's the contrast between his and ours. Look at the words that are descriptive of our sins, grief, sorrows, transgressions, iniquities, gone astray his own way. Look at the words that speak of his work of atonement. He bore, he carried, he was wounded, he was bruised, punishment, stripes laid on him. This is the language not only of substitution, brothers and sisters, this is the language of penal substitution. And I want to be clear. Many times we as evangelicals talk about the theory of penal substitution. I think we can jettison the word theory. There's nothing theoretical about the doctrine of penal substitution. It is biblical through and through. Theologian Dolores Williams is wrong when she says, and I quote, there's nothing divine in the blood of the cross. We don't need people hanging on crosses, blood dripping and weird stuff. Bishop John Spong has no hope when he says, I do not want a God who would kill his own son. No, John Calvin got it right when he said in order to interpose between us and God's anger and satisfy his righteous judgment, it was necessary that he, the son, should feel the weight of divine vengeance. The hymn writer Philip Bliss got it exactly right. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He bore our sin. He died in our place. He paid the penalty that you and I should have paid for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous the loving shepherd in the place of lost sheep, the exalted king in the place of his rebel subjects. Let me hasten, number four, see the servant's submission, verses seven through nine. There is an exemplary aspect to the atonement. Here we find it laid forth very clearly in this particular stanza. Note, first of all, his silence. He was submissive in his silence. He was oppressed, verse seven. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. No protest of his treatment, no resentment of his destiny. Like a lamb, and of course, we could spend a long time talking about the theme of the lamb that runs from Genesis 22 all the way to Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears, he is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was Submissive in his silence, he was submissive in his suffering, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was treated unfairly and unjustly. And then as for his generation, who considered? He was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, executed with no offspring, executed, no one defending him, executed, Childless, And in that day and age, to die childless meant that you were 
cursed by God, and yet the Bible makes it clear all of this was for the transgression of my people. The blow that fell on the servant is a blow that should have fallen on you and should have fallen on me. He was submissive in his suffering, but thirdly, he was submissive in his shame. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his violence, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Carries the idea that, that he was buried among the wicked rich. The idea is something like this. He was a good man and yet he was buried with the wicked. And he was a poor man and yet he was buried with the wealthy. And his life shouldn't have ended this way. I mean, he had done no violence. There was no deceit found in his mouth. The poet put it this way, why is he silent when just a word would slay his accusers all? Why does he meekly bear their taunts when angels await his call? He was made sin, my sin he bore upon the accursed tree, and sin has no defense to offer at all. You see, his silence was all for me. See the servant's submission. Finally, see the servant's salvation, verses 10 through 12. The death of Jesus, brothers and sisters, was not a murder, nor was it a martyrdom. It was a divine appointment. Spurgeon got it exactly right. The blood-stained scriptures were written by the Lord as much as any other. And verse 10 has to be one of the most mysterious, uh, paradoxical, difficult verses in all the Bible for us to grasp. Just raise the question, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? And you could say the Jewish leaders, and you'd be correct. You could say the Romans, you'd be correct. You could say you and I, and you'd be correct. But when everything is said and done, look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. You see, the death of the Messiah, the suffering servant of the Lord, it was purposed by the Lord. Jesus was the right person at the right time, at the right place, following the right plan. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for guilt. Stop. Because if you don't stop, you will not uh, experience the impact of what follows. Because in my Bible, you can come look at it after I'm through in just a second. In my Bible, there's an arrow driven, uh, drawn right there in red ink with the word resurrection. Because when you move from 10A to 10B, everything turns and now goes in a completely different way. Yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. It was the will of the Lord to make his soul an offering for guilt, but he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If chapter 10 or 53 verse 10b does not teach resurrection, 
Its glorious shadow certainly is looming large in the background. Now we understand the servant's life and sacrifice was not a waste. It was not a loss. Indeed, he will see his offspring. His life will be prolonged. It will be the pleasure of the Lord to bless and to prosper him. See that it was purposed by the Lord. See that it was pleasing to the servant. Verse 11, of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Christ will be satisfied at what has been accomplished. He goes on by saying, by his knowledge, and I believe it speaks of his knowledge of what he's accomplished, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous because he bears their iniquities. And so it is pleasing to the son. If you want a commentary on this verse, just go read Hebrews chapter 12 and verse two, where it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was purposed by the Lord. It was pleasing to the servant. And finally, it is provided for many. Verse 12, therefore, using the imagery of a victory parade, I will divide him a portion with the many. Could be translated with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And why? Four concluding reasons. Number one, he poured out his soul to death. Number two, he was numbered, counted with the transgressors. Number three, he bore the sin of many. And number four, he ever lived to make intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews 7, 25, he makes intercession for sinners. My colleague at Southern Seminary, Daniel Block, puts it very, very well as I close. Quote, the messianic hope is a single line that begins in broadest terms with God's promise of victory over the serpent through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3:15. It is then narrowed successfully to the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22:18. The tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49 verse 10. The stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11:1. 1. The house and dynasty of David, 2 Samuel 7, and finally the suffering and slain servant of Yahweh, Isaiah 53. Rejection was his, acceptance is ours. The wounding was his, the healing is ours. The stripes were his, the salvation is ours. The price paid was his, the forgiveness received is ours. The death was his, but life is ours. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I have no doubt this morning that I have not done justice to this text that I doubt human lips can do justice to. But I pray that in some small way we have been able to grasp uh, and gain a glimpse this morning of the incredible suffering servant of the Lord, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is because of what Isaiah 53 is talking about that we are here. And it is because of what Isaiah 53 is talking about that we go. Thank you for the suffering servant of Isaiah. Thank you for Jesus. We make our prayer in his name. Amen and amen. 
Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.